Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the MBIT Podcast, and I'm your host, Seamus Medan. I started this podcast at 15 years old in December of 2020 to bring personal finance education to the next generation. Now, I am 16 years old, and the podcast has evolved to interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, GPs, and founders of public companies, all of which are designed to delve into insights that have not been shared elsewhere for the next generation of those interested in business. Recently, I ventured into the VC space as a venture fellow at Blitzscaling Ventures, which is backed by the co-founder of LinkedIn, and I am interviewing those farther along in their journey to learn more on everything that I and the audience is curious about. If any of the above sounds interesting to you, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And now, back to the show. So welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Embit Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Mercedes Bent, a partner at Lightspeed Ventures. And prior to Lightspeed, Mercedes was the general manager at General Assembly, which sold for $412 million in 2018, where she launched several product lines and drove both top-line revenue and cost improvements, ultimately growing her division from $0 to $30 million in just two years. And then in 2016, Mercedes was named a 40 under 40 for tech diversity in Silicon Valley. So first off, thank you, Mercedes, for taking the time to join the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the podcast. Absolutely. And prior to delving into venture, you were an analyst in the asset management division on a private wealth team at Goldman Sachs, where you managed $1.75 billion in wealth for high net worth individuals and institutional clients. You facilitated client participation in the IPO market and traded public equities, options, and commodities on behalf of the clients. Then after Goldman Sachs, which is when you joined General Assembly as a product manager, and General Assembly, for those of you who don't know, is a global network of campuses helping individuals pursue the work that they love by teaching skills in technology, business, data, and design. And then since 2011, General Assembly has expanded to 20 cities around the world and has taught over 300,000 students. But when I was talking to Eric Bond from Hustle Fund, he's also a former product manager from Intuit and Instagram. And what he knows from being a PM is that's where the innovation from a company comes from as it scales. And it's a completely different experience from the venture capital industry. So my question question is, how did you jump into venture capital from a product manager? And then what has that journey been like? I started transitioning into VC probably four years ago. I, um, After General Assembly, I worked at another startup that was a virtual reality startup. And then I started two companies of my own. And I learned very quickly that the experience of kind of scaling a company one to 100 is very different than starting a company and working on it from the zero to one phase. I realized that a lot of my skill set really lied in helping companies scale from that one to 100. And so I decided, you know, I wanted to be working in venture where I could help a lot more companies do that. I also was looking around at the time and thinking, there's not a lot of, you know, uh, founders that look like me in venture or in, in the startup space and definitely not people in venture either. And so I thought I could be additive to the industry by having a different life experience, a different skill set, a different perspective. And so, you know, I got in hoping I can fund uh, more women and diverse founders. Definitely. And at General Assembly, you led partnerships with key universities. Let's start off there on the importance of partnerships on long-term growth and then how startups can leverage those and maintain those partnerships over time in a way that can benefit both parties. 
Yeah, there I was uh, running a P&L for the university division, which involved a lot of partnerships. So the, my role was more a general management role, but it involved what I would really describe as enterprise sales into universities. Um, so partnerships can take a lot of forms. They can take the form of revenue driving sales. They can take the form of kind of ecosystem partnerships that help maybe share, you know, growing users or growth and kind of like getting your brand to be larger, or it can be partnerships that are really focused on supporting the supply side of your business and then enabling your cost side of your business to perform even better. So I would describe this as like mostly close to sales. And I think sales is one of the most critical skills you can learn in any organization. It's funny that it's kind of looked down upon in some colleges. They don't seem to teach sales, but sales is this really amazing skill set that allows you to walk into any organization and deliver your value, communicate your value prop, persuade people to come onto your team. And in venture, that's all we do. I mean, we sell money and selling money is technically a commodity and you can get it in a lot of different places. And so I think of actually the sales ability being able to say, how do I make my money smell different to entrepreneurs? How do I communicate my value prop, my values, and why I'm different along with that money? So it it taught me a lot to do those, those really year-long, multi-year-long sales when I was at General Assembly. Absolutely. And a lot of uh, founders might have the vision that they can create a really great product. The people will come to them, their customers will come to them. But sales business is a super important part of growth. I'm glad you brought that up. And fast forwarding to today, you joined Lightspeed's consumer investing team in 2019 and co-led the Latin American region, the Scout Fund, and invest in early stage consumer companies, unlocking wealth creation for underserved individuals in regions, whether that's through crypto, fintech, career mobility, or the creator economy. And according to CNBC, just 29% of Americans are financially stable. Although this results in a very large opportunity, it does also come with a very crowded market. So what are some of the challenges in investing in a crowded market like fintech? And then how do you weed out the ones who look to have the highest probability of long-term success? It's a great question. And I mean, fintech has been on a tremendous run. The last decade, it was the sector of venture that received the most venture capital dollars. And until the market crash was one of the sectors that had, you know, produced the greatest overall value. It got hit a lot harder than other sectors as the comps have come down. And, you know, they're, they've traded down 80%, 90%. 70% since their peak in November. But I still think it's an amazing category to be investing in because of exactly what you described, kind of that component, that mission-driven, impact-driven component of how do we actually give people financial tools to improve their lives in America or emerging markets. And so when I think about how do I you know, weed out and think about what's going to be a great investment, there's a couple of things I'm looking at. One is, especially on the consumer fintech side, is is this new banking product, whether it's offering brokerage service, credit card, insurance, you know, BNPL, is it becoming a core part of the financial tool set of that user? The average American has five to seven bank accounts. And so when you are fighting to get in there into their top one or two or maybe three, you know, are you becoming a, a weekly usage product for them? Are they starting to deposit their salary or some, you know, recurring kind of, uh, you know, deposit into your account. If you're starting to see those signs and it's like, okay, check, this has become a big component of the user's life. Um, another thing I look for, especially in emerging markets, I invest in Mexico, Brazil, and Colombia. 
where these products, unlike America, people don't have five to seven bank accounts. It's their first bank account. And so I'm looking for what percentage of users that are joining, registering, and retaining long-term, is this the first time they've ever had a brokerage account? I sit on the board of Flink, which is like the Robin Hood of Mexico. It's a neo-broker. And 86% of their new users never have invested in equities before in the, or in the U.S. stock market at all. Uh, another company I, I sit on the board of Story, it's a credit card neo-bank in Brazil, similar to a new bank. And the vast, vast majority of their users have never been able to access credit before and certainly not a credit card. And so when you think about what does credit allow you to do, it allows you to manage your cash flow cycle better, plan big purchases, and be able to not, you know, kind of be living day to day in terms of what's your actual income. I think that makes a really big difference. And so what I'm looking for is that core usage the new additionality in terms of it's something that wasn't there before. And then the constant things we look for in any consumer product, long-term engagement and retention. Gotcha. And with VC being a very important part of company growth, now you're currently backing uh, underrepresented founders, as you mentioned a little earlier, and there's some very big ones who have succeeded, for example, the founder of Calendly. And with VC being a very important part for large company growth and going public, how can we get more VCs to fund underrepresented founders? I think VC suffers a lot from confirmation bias and also from pattern matching. It's tough because that's also what makes you a good investor. The skill set to be able to constantly look at new businesses and and say, oh, I see something like this before. But you know, one of the failure modes, top failure modes of any venture capitalist is to go, oh, I've seen that before and it didn't work a bunch of times, so it's not going to work now. And so I actually think part of the key of funding more underrepresented founders is putting yourself in the mindset of actually how can I say yes to this? What would need to be different for it to work this time versus it never having worked before? I think that is a really big component. And also any, I mean, no, most investors aren't putting themselves through, you know, uh, confirmation bias training, but, you know, how do you kind of get your mind more flexible and introduce more diverse opinions around your investor partnership so that someone can say, well, that's interesting. You look at it this way, but here's this different perspective and data I have to share with you that shows that maybe there's a little another side that we should consider. And that's where I think also getting many more diverse investors into VC is a really big component. And I know of OpenSea, which is very big in the NFT space. There have been scams in crypto and NFTs. And the company said in its Twitter post that more than 80% of NFTs created for free on its platform were either plagiarized from artists or just spam. With NFTs being part of community building, what are some of the things that you're doing to find companies that will truly make an impact in the pop culture space and not just crash when the bubble pops like it did in the dot-com bubble? Yeah, and we're investors in Magic Eden, which is a leading NFT marketplaces on the Solana ecosystem. And so, you know, I think it's really interesting that you call out crypto and pop culture as being, you know, synonymous, because I do think that, you know, DGEN culture is a new form of culture, the same way anime and sneakerheads and, you know, uh, beat boys and hip hop have all been, you know, kind of things that looked niche and then grew into these really large uh, pop culture genres. And so, you know, when we think about how to really truly find companies that can make it past the hype cycle, maybe is how I would phrase it, is it's really thinking about how do you create a sustainable 
repeatable way to grow. And how do you create habits? We always look for habit formation in companies. And how do you measure that in terms of engagement and retention and pull the right levers and put the right incentives in place to really guide your users along this user journey that you want them to go on? There's often this initial hook that is what either utility or entertainment value that brings somebody into a new consumer product. But that is kind of the blockbuster. That's like to use Netflix's analogy of blockbusters, the show horses and the workhorses. You have that engagement hook that gets someone in, but then you have to connect to a much deeper sense of emotional connectedness, whether it's a sense of belonging or a sense of uh, influence or, you know, kind of appealing to someone's aspirations and their, you know, the think about the Maslow's hierarchy, like how do you get further up the, the pyramid in terms of what you appeal to? And when you start to have multiple different emotional connected needs, that's when retention really tends to work. So I think most companies, they start with a very shallow value prop and working, doing all the work to expand that into a deeper, more meaningful value prop is pretty difficult. Um, but I think that you have to spend a lot of time on product and making it work. The other thing is just your marketing strategies. If you put all of your marketing strategies into, you know, generating the most hype and having some celebrities tweet you out, yeah, that's a good flash in the pan. And so how do you build in SEO and digital marketing and really community building? Actually, the crypto industry has does this better than a lot of Web2 companies. But how do you really build true community values that people are staying not just for your product but for the ecosystem absolutely and when i had uh, conversations with people like tim draper one of the ways he was able to grow his portfolio over time and we talked about it on the podcast before but he would look at industries that other people are ignoring so with your interest in pop culture what are some of the spaces in that industry that people are ignoring that they probably shouldn't be it's a great question. I think anime and Dijin cultures are two of the less appreciated. Um, I don't think people appreciate how big they are right now for the younger generations. Most VCs are millennials or Gen X or, you know, older boomers. And so, you know, they may not be as familiar with the really pop culture sectors and trends that are driving. So I think that's really um, a big one. I think another area is thinking through... Um, like the globalization of international culture. A lot of people, I invest in Latin America, as you, as you know, a lot of people, you know, in America don't know that Bad Bunny is the number one streaming artist on Spotify for the last few years in a row. And so when you think about it, you're like, wait, really? You know, Ameri a lot of Americans maybe. I, I, a lot of some parts of America have never even heard of, of Bad Bunny, although he's extremely popular. I just went to a concert he sold out in Yankee Stadium, um, you know, a few few days ago. But I think just thinking about the globalization of international culture, he only raps Spanish lyrics in his in his songs, but yet he's a worldwide phenomenon. That's only going to continue if you look at the K-pop and um, kind of Korean. Uh, kind of um, influence on Hollywood and music right now, that's also extremely strong. And so I expect that we're going to continue to see a lot more consumer and pop culture categories that are taking this global view. We're investors in Cameo, which is a platform where you can get a shout out from influencers and creators and actually going global and like relying on those trends is is hugely beneficial for them.
With the length of a fund being around 10 years, most VCs don't really know how successful they're going to be until many years down the road. And without knowing the results of the decisions you're making, it can be difficult to improve over time. So what are some of the things that you're doing to improve uh, each and every day? And then what are some of the things VCs in your industry could do to do the same? This is a great question. And I think this is one of the areas where venture capital is actually really similar to startups in that one of the two things, one thing they both have to do is manage through uncertainty, vast amounts of uncertainty. You don't know what company you're building. You don't know what your product is. And for for startups and for venture, you don't know what your returns are going to be, like you mentioned, for 10 years. And so how do you break a massive uncertain problem into its smaller components and parts and really thinking about what are the leading indicators at every stage for the next three months, for the next six months, for the next year that are most likely to lead to success is really what you, and and to do it in a way that aligns with your strengths is really the key. So I think about, okay, when I first joined Venture, you know, I was investing a lot in ed tech because of General Assembly. I had done a lot of ed tech stuff. And that was the goal of that was to get up to speed quickly and get my partners to trust me that, hey, I actually know the sector so I can control for that, kind of minimize the effect of that variable. But I'm learning a lot about how venture works right now. And so you don't want to be learning on six different dimensions all at the same time. So that first I did ed tech and then I thought, you know, hey, ed tech, I love the sector. I'm so passionate about it, but it's not necessarily the sector that produces the biggest returns. And so then how do I start to find more sectors now that I know a lot more about how venture works that can produce even bigger returns because we're a pretty large fund. We need to return really large funds. We have about 18 billion under management right now. And so then I'm looking at fintech. And then I thought, hey, there's a lot of people who are already doing fintech. How do I specialize? I start looking at Latin America because Latin America was a totally undertapped region. I'm a part Colombian. And so I can leverage my strength of speaking kind of intermediate Spanish um, and also, you know, having a, a heritage there. And I have a Spanish name, Mercedes. And also, you know, just looking where other people aren't looking, but utilizing kind of the knowledge of how fintech has worked and Lightspeed's knowledge of how global, you know, we've we've entered India, Asia, uh, China, Southeast Asia, Europe, and Israel over time. I can utilize some of that firm's playbook of how to enter new markets. And so that's really like me finding my skill sets and strengths and uniqueness and matching that up to a prior thing I had just learned a little bit earlier about how to be successful in terms of my learning. So it's constant little iterations of of learning to manage through uncertainty. Gotcha. And to wrap it up here, what would be some of your takeaways uh, for those in venture, especially whether that be in the pop culture space or investing in underrepresented founders or anything in, in those sectors? Yeah, I just wrote a post a little while ago on Twitter about kind of some of my top advice for for coming going into venture. And I really think the thing that, you know, venture more than anything else is a game of self-reflection and introspection. If like what we talked about, if if selling money is a bit of a commodity, then and you have to make it different because of why you are unique, then you need to really know yourself well. And you need to know what drives you. What are you passionate about? How do you connect your purpose for why you're doing venture to the companies that you're investing in? And how do you make that skill set seem and you know actually be really 
unique to the founders? How does that story, that value prop resonate? Like I'm the product <laughs> and I have to make sure the value prop of me makes a lot of sense to, to a founder. And um, given that the capital is is a little bit commoditized, um, cash is cash. All cash is the same. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think the best advice I can give is like, know yourself, know why you're unique and drive after your purpose, you'll win. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And thank you, Mercedes, for taking the time to join the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.